please join me in welcoming Mark Michael Epstein back to Orange County. You're like, you're like, I will say, did anybody watch Saturday Night Live? You know when they have that, free, that returning guest program and after three or four or five they have a joke that you get a jacket? We're going to have to buy Mark like his own jacket because he's come so many times here. And what I want to buy Ferrari is, you know, that old-fashioned crook. <laughs> okay. That's what we have to... Well, now that I have five minutes to <laughs> right. speak, I... I'm really, 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 two things, grateful, which I am every day for every breath I take, okay, and really impressed. I mean, the last time I was here, Ari, it was like you, me, Terry, Tony, Rochelle, a couple other people were dead, you know, I mean, it was like, it's, it's, it's I mean, this is momish impressive. Um, I want to talk to you about a subject that is very near, can we shut the lights please? Very near and dear to my heart and perhaps nearer and dearer to some of your hearts now that you, some of you are traveling to Poland. Um, and I want to thank in particular <laughs> the wonderful Terry and Tony McDonald for their patronage, moral support and true love. I mean these are people who, you know, when they're in New York City, they call me up to have dinner. That's very nice, even though we didn't do it. And I just want to say, in the spirit, the spirit of Ari Katz, um, your picture could be here, right? Is that what I'm supposed to say, Ari? The kickbacks are coming? Okay, good. Um, all right. Um, it's often been claimed that the Jews always had a somewhat ambivalent relationship with art. It's been almost de rigueur for centuries now for art historians to wish away even the idea that Jews could possibly have made art. Even enlightened art historians of, shall we say, the mosaic persuasion, like uh, Bernard Berenson, the consummate 19th century uh, art critic, connoisseur, dealer, and crook, um, were accustomed uh, to do this, right? The Jews, like the Ishmaelite cousins, the Arabs, displayed little talent for the visual and almost none for the figurative arts. To the Jews belong the splendors and the raptures of the word, right? That's the way it was thought of. Uh, just about every book on the subject of Jewish art starts out by making sure we understand that the second commandment allegedly prohibits the production of visual arts. After all, everyone knows that um, Jews were nitpicking legalistic folks untouched by grace, living in perpetual dark servitude to the law, right? Um, and so, of course, God would have prohibited them from having any art, right? But of course, people who said that had never seen Chodorov Synagogue, which we'll talk about in a second. So what are we to do with that pesky second commandment. If we want to view Jews as people at least as intelligent and thoughtful as we are, oh, some of us, all of us maybe are Jews, right? Um, people, you know, to think about, you know, limiting, narrowing ways of understanding law is extremely problematic. For Jews, as you know, the Torah was a love letter from God. And when you get a love letter from somebody, you want to know what's written in it, right? And so in typical fashion, the rabbis understood the second commandment as having not a single word, syllable, or letter in excess, right? So here it says, you shall not make for yourself, if you were writing the Bible, just to save, you know, the Bible's printed on toilet paper, right? It's just very thin, right? It's called Bible paper, but we know it's good for papering bird carriages if you're, uh, papering bird cages if you're a socialist, right? Um, so, so, right so, so the Bible is printed on very thin paper, why? Because if you printed it out on normal paper, it would be this thick, right? So if you were writing the Bible, how would you write this commandment if you meant it to prohibit the creation of art? You would say, you should not make. Why should you say you should not make for yourself? You would say you should not make an image. Why should you say a three-dimensional image, etc., etc.? So uh, the way it was interpreted in classical rabbinic tradition was you should not make for yourself, but this doesn't include making for others or others making for you. A three-dimensional image, which doesn't exclude a two-dimensional image, and you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. This is the modifying clause in all cases, applying only to the Jewish use of images and not to the way they were used by non-Jews. So for instance, you could not make, but you might own a statue of a Nigerian thunder god, right? Which was originally intended for worship by Nigerians, right? You could have that in your house, as long as you don't do what? 
Worship it, good. Now, some people would say we shouldn't have it in our house because maybe we'll come to worship it, but I, I don't have any particular attraction to worshiping this statue. Okay, um, you shall not make for yourself, right? Thanks, silence your phones. But you may make for others, provided that they are not Jews, even a work of art that non-Jews will use in worship. Here's a Madonna and Child made by Moshe Cohn, donated to Our Lady of Perpetual Mercy Cathedral in Hackensack, New Jersey. I just like the word Hackensack, New Jersey. It's a great place. Um, but, but seriously, folks, you know, have you been to Rome? You, sh you know, they should go to Rome. Should we? Yeah, like in 2021. What do you think? How about with me, Ari? You'll take a vote. Okay. So in, in, and Venice, right. So if you go to Rome, right, up till probably a couple of years ago, all the utristi, the people who sold tchotchkes, Christian tchotchkes, in the Vatican, right, little pietas and crucifixes, they were all Jews of Roman and Libyan origin who received a heter permission from the chief rabbi of Rome to make and sell those things. Now they're all made in China. Right? Um, and uh, from the Vatican to sell the, make and sell those things. So you could do this halachically. Um, and then finally, any three-dimensional work, but you may own any two-dimensional work of art, even a three-dimensional work of art, honestly, originally intended for worship if you don't use them for worship. Right? So what's the upshot? You may own, you may make, two-dimensional, three-dimensional works of art as long as you're not using them for worship. With the result that Jews throughout history created monuments of visual culture, monuments of art, and they did so with enthusiasm throughout the ages. We have no verifiable artifacts from Solomon's temple, but the second Jerusalem temple, begun in 535 before the Common Era and dedicated in 515, was extensively renovated, really rebuilt by Herod the Great around 19 of the Common Era. And we have both fairly corroborable accounts of its appearance in texts and, I don't know if you've seen these, fragments of its architecture in the Hecht Archaeological Museum on the campus of um, Haifa University a dusty little place where nobody ever goes, they preserve the actual fragments from the inner gates of the second temple. And they contain floral motifs like this lily or rose, but also, yes, those are swastikas, elements of design and power in many cultures, including those of the ancient Israelites, before their um, co-optation and debasement by the National Socialist regime in, in uh, Germany. But we don't only have architectural design elements from the ancient period. Representational and narrative art, always in two dimensions, has also survived. The Dura Europis Synagogue was an ancient synagogue uncovered in Syria in 1932. It dates to around 244 of the Common Era. That's the latest inscription in the synagogue making it one of the oldest synagogues in the world. And if you've visited synagogues in the land of Israel, you know that there's you know, some columns and maybe some seating and mosaics from the floors, right? But this one had the walls preserved because it was built into the city wall of the town and sand blew up against it. And so we have a complete cycle of figurative paintings including full frontal female nudity right next to the ark. That's Moses being found in the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, perhaps, or Pharaoh's daughter's maidservant, or some people say by the divine feminine, by the Shekinah, although I think that's, to use the Yiddish term, a little fa-fetched. Um, <laughs> but there she is, you know, full, full frontal nudity, right? And the ancient synagogue of Beit Alpha is probably more familiar to some of you, located in the Beit Sha'an Valley in the northeast of Israel, mosaic floor was discovered in 1929 when members of the kibbutz there were digging channels for their fields. And they exposed mosaics that had been preserved intact since the Byzantine period, right? And there was a shul there, right? And, and the mosaics are very, very cool because they have Hebrew inscriptions, right? This is the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. So we have from right Yitzchak, Avraham, the hand of God, coming out of a raid cloud, and it says, al tishlach, do not, 
do not cast forth your hand, right? And then at the back almost is an afterthought, just as it is in the narrative, right? The Hinei and here is the ram. Here is a ram, right? Very, very charming. Um, so this sort of representational and narrative art makes its way into the Middle Ages. And this lively engagement um, evinced by Jews in late antiquity with the vis visible, visual, I should say, falls into a period of dormancy around the seventh century with the rise of Islam. Now, before you start getting all anti-Muslim on me and tell me you know, that, that Muslims are bad and they hate art and so they force Jews to stop making art and isn't that criminal, that's not the case. The, when, when Islam conquered the world in the, uh, the seventh century and thereabouts, the Jews who lived in Islamic lands were not prohibited from making art. They were their art making was protected. The Muslims didn't care what Jews did. It was like, you know, you can make, you can make art, but we don't make art. But, dang. What happened was that, can everybody else see now, still? Okay. So what happened was the Jews wanted to be like this world-conquering empire. And so they stopped making figurative art and started making decorative art just like Muslims because, let's face it, Jews are like tofu. Whatever society you put them in, they want to be like what's around them, right? Is anybody here wearing flowing robes and turbans? I mean, I see a dude, I see one dude with a fish hat, which is really cool. Um, but you know, I don't see flowing robes and turbans, right? You're all dressed like Western people. So Jews in Muslim lands wanted to be in that period like Muslims, so they didn't do so much figurative art. But during the 13th century, when Jews had settled and spread throughout Christendom in the West, Jews both in Sfarad in Spain and in Ashkenaz, Franco-Germany, developed a renewed interest in narrative painting at the very same time that Christian narrative painting stops being made only in monasteries by monks and nuns and moves with increasing urbanization onto the cathedral or high streets of all the towns of Europe. And so now anybody who had a bag of money could walk into one of these shops and say, make me a manuscript. And a conversation ensued. Ah, oh, manuscript, what you want? Would you like a book of hours? No, we don't do books of hours. How about a, a Haggadah? A Hawadah? A Haggadah, right? And then there's a conversation that occurs. Very, very interesting time. That's why I study the time, because you know, probably you were taught, as I was, that the Middle Ages was an unrelenting veil of tears for Jews and every day a memorial day. As a book by the Simon Wiesenthal Center puts it, there's a book that tells you all the bad things that happen to Jews every single day of the calendar of every single year, right? Now, a lot of bad stuff happened, but most days, Jews were not being pogromed, right? They had to buy eggs and milk like anybody else, and the very wealthy ones, the elites, the one percenters, those people who say could, you know, come to a, well, the equivalent of you guys, right? Have the time and the leisure and the funds to come to, you know, a nice, a nice talk, right? Those people were commissioning manuscripts, and they were in dialogue with the people around them. Very, very exciting time. And so, there was a rebirth of narrative figurative art in Jewish culture, and a whole range of symbols develops. Some of them are imported from antiquity, others come from rabbinic and medieval texts, and some of them were originally Jewish symbols that Christians took over and Jews took back again. Fascinating, look at this image. This is an image, it's from a, a piyut, a poem from Rosh Hashanah, and it is an image of, uh, it's hard to see, Ezekiel's vision. Um, and at the top you have an eagle, a man, a bull, and a lion. And they are obviously from the book of Ezekiel. They were adopted as signs and symbols of the Christian evangelists, as you know, St. Mark is the lion, St. Matthew is the man, St. Luke is the ox, and St. Um, John is the eagle. And they had artistic manifestations. Well, the Jews in the Middle Ages, not having a pictorial tradition of Ezekiel's vision to draw on, went and looked at Christian sources, hired Christian artists, and they reappropriated stuff that had been happening in Christianity that originally came from Judaism. So like, it's really mind-blowing. I mean, this stuff is fascinating to me. And all these symbols found their way into art de decorating synagogues in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, the art we're here to discuss today. There was also the ornamentation with the same symbols of ritual objects, grand, like this gigantic Polish 
Brass Synagogue Lampstand for Hanukkah, which has lions at its base. And, and we'll talk about lions. Or more humble, like this tiny Polish silver spice box used at the conclusion of the Sabbath. The 19th century saw a rise in painting with Jewish themes, some of it kind of kitschy and genre-esque, and other examples very sophisticated, as this Moritzi Gottlieb um, painting in which he uses traditional settings, right? Konidre in the synagogue, very heavy, very nostalgic. But he uses it to tell a particular and a very modern story. And that's, that's a story we could tell at another occasion. And the 20th century, close your eyes if you're from, saw the rise of more and more Jewish artists as the effects of emancipation were felt. But the entry of Jews into mainstream artistic production raises some interesting questions. Since Modiani was a Jewish artist of Italian origin, you know, Italy would be a good place to go, I think, of Italian origin, um, is a nude by Modiani, a, a Jewish nude? I mean, is there such a thing as a Jewish nude? Right? Um, and then there's Chagall, right? Chagall. We all know Chagall. When he paints goats and Torah scrolls, he's clearly a Jewish artist. But what about, I love this painting, it's my favorite painting, right? But what about his lovers? It's called The Birthday, right? His later flower paintings, which with all respect to florists, I can't stand, right? His Jesus, here one might argue he's most Jewish of all. This painting happens to be the present Pope's favorite painting, and that's why I went to see him. But more about that another time. Okay, so part of the problem is that when we look at so-called Jewish art, it looks so much like the art of the surrounding culture in which Jews were resident, those tofu-like Jews assimilating the styles of the culture, right? So here's a manuscript, the Golden Haggadah, made in Barcelona in 1320, very famous for looking so non-Jewish. In fact, here's, a, here's an example from the manuscript put right up against a very similar image made for the king of France. Now you notice a few things. There's more gold in the manuscript made for the rich Spanish Jew than there is in the manuscript made for the king of France, right? But otherwise, it's configured very similarly in a high Gothic style. An angel in a medieval Jewish machzor, a cycle of festival prayers, is wearing Christian liturgical garb, has peacock wings, just like an angel in Christian art of the contemporary period, right? That's how an angel looks for Jews and for Christians. Or this kind of manuscript, which is a medical manuscript, talking about different bloodletting times, because that's how they heal people, right? By, um, uh, uh, taking blood and when it was permitted was forbidden and correlating on the body the astrological signs, right? This is not predictive astrology like you read in the newspaper, you know, Lib Libras will have a very bad day today because they'll have to deal with Ari Katz and he's going to tell everybody all kinds of lies and then we're going to have to, you know, work it out and then it's going to go in the podcast and they'll have to take out that part because he's going to get, another, you know, th that's predictive ast astrology, right? But this is medical astrology. It says like the, the, the knees are influenced by Capricorn or whatever. Right? So this is a manuscript that was made in England in the 14th century. And here's a Jewish manuscript, that first one was made for Christians, made in Italy. It's identical in terms of the placement of the astrological signs. There's more text, because Jews, as you know, obsess about text, right? Um, and there's one further detail, which is that the figure is notably circumcised. Yes, right? Now, um, Right? That's a, that's a, that's a, that is definitely a major um, difference. So, you know, art influences art. Culture influences culture. And it is no more evident than in what we would call folk culture. It's evident, obviously, in high culture because, you know, artists see other artists' work, and, right? But what about buildings that are made for communities? What about art that is made for common people to view. It may be sponsored by fancy people, rich people, right? Um, there is this tradition of magnificent wooden synagogues in Poland and Ukraine, right? Well, what was uniquely and indigenously Jewish about them? The architecture was somewhat, the tent structure was distinctive, 
but they were made with post and beam construction with very little use of metal, right? Because they were all pegs and right peg, just like churches were in the Ukraine in the same period. And even the tent structure, which is important as we'll see for Jews in terms of its symbolism, right? Because the original focus of worship of the Israelites when they came from Egypt was a tent called the Mishkan or the tabernacle, right? And this is a sort of reimagining of that space, right? But the, 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 the technology of the architecture, using wood, post and beam, etc., was very much indigenous to the time and place. And it's very striking, I mean, very striking. Like buildings with these little medieval Jewish hats on them, I always think. Or even, you know, some people have made analogies with pagodas, right? What counts, I believe, however, is how the people inside looked at the structure and how they viewed and understood its significance. How would one go about seeing such synagogues today? The vast majority were destroyed even before the Second World War, and the job was completed, so to speak, during and after the war. So they don't survive. If we have architectural plans, it's because some ethnographic uh, expedition went around Poland, Ukraine at the beginning of the 19th century and recorded these things. And if we have color illustrations, it's because people drew, art students drew them, or we have black and white photographs that people who are around who remember what the colors were like um, spoke to the, design, you know, the designers of the illustrations, but it's actually hard to see the real ones. And if you get to see a painted synagogue, as you will, if you go to Hungary, for instance, the Dohani Utsa synagogue is a beautiful Moorish synagogue, beautifully stenciled and painted, or um, the, um, the Kazinci uh, Utsa synagogue, an Orthodox synagogue in Budapest, the only Orthodox synagogue besides one in Antwerp that is decorated in high art deco style. I mean, really, it's, it's beautiful. Um, or as last week, I was in Sarajevo as one is, um, and, and, and I got to, that's me, I got to Davin in, in, um, in the shul, it's the fourth shul, there was a very medieval shul later, 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 and this shul was built around 1890s, but it's strange, right? You know what that is? The first floor was destroyed, it was used by a, as a stable, as these things often were, and completely destroyed, and they used the Ezra's Nashim, the upper floor, they put a floor in and that became the shul. So you're seeing the upper part of the arch and some sense of how, you know, what a beautiful, beautiful painted space this was. It was really nice to daven there even though I was the only person davening. Okay, but there is an, I'll take questions at the end if you don't mind. It's a question of how the, the microphones work. There is an amazing project that has helped us, helped us to recover, restore, reimagine the lost synagogues of Poland, Ukraine, the 18th century synagogues that inspired artists Rick and Laura Brown of Hans House Studio to embark on a 10-year pursuit. And I was there all along the way from their first glimmerings of this idea to reconstruct the elaborate cupola, the roof, and painted ceiling of a synagogue from a place called Gvorjets. It's really a gorgeous synagogue. Um, leading over 300 students and professionals from over 16 countries, the Browns grappled not just with the echoes of World War II when these buildings were destroyed ultimately, but with warped timbers and tricky paints and period hand tools. By the end of the project, they have done more than reconstruct a lost synagogue. They've recovered a lost um, world. And I want you to see oh, a little bit, one second. Over 200 of these synagogues were built in Poland during the 17th and 18th century. But by 1942, every single one of them had been destroyed. Ganskoi. This guy is not Jewish <laughs> Nothing was left but ashes. The big dream is that one day we're going to build one of these wooden synagogues as accurately as possible in Poland.
there were some timber framers saying, oh my gosh, there is no way we're going to get this done. And there's students who are scratching their heads saying, how do you hold an axe? <laughs> This is not renegade art. This is not art that some artistic rabbi, you know, cooked up. It's borders and flowers and animals and circles and, and medallions. This painting is huge. This structure, because of the way that it was built, is endowed with exponentially greater value because everyone who contributed to making it is part of what it is. How often do you get a chance to reach deep into history and bring something back? So the gorgeous roof was unveiled in 2014 as the centerpiece of the Pauline Museum of Jewish History in Warsaw. Um, oh, sorry, didn't mean to, to start it again. Hold on. This is an amazing museum that is the first and only museum dedicated to restoring the memory of the civilization created by Polish Jews in the course of an entire millennium. Right, it's in Warsaw, it's opposite the monument to the ghetto heroes, and the monument honors those who perished in remembering how they died, and the museum honors them and those who came before and after by remembering how they lived, and it's really also a wonderful and monumental project. It's really an amazing, an amazing museum. And um, actually, I was involved in, oh, there it goes. This is what happens when you do this. I was involved in it from, from the beginning, but I never went. They invited me to go, and I had a graduate student who I was trying to promote who's Polish. And I sent her in my, you know, on my ticket. So I've never been to Poland. I've never seen the museum, but I've heard wonderful, wonderful things about it. In the museum and in these films, you can see the slightly downscale but meticulously reproduced facsimile of the cupola and bima of the synagogue of Vorgetz. It has, as you can see, a distinctive geometry. It's a mandala of sorts, uh, a pocket cosmology, a microcosm of the world, its wonders and the heavens, animals and plants and planets. And it's just breathtaking, really. And I love the fact that students, some of my students were involved in creating the project and working along with people who knew texts, all the texts are correct, you know. And the amazing and wonderful Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, who is really um, the genius besides Ru uh, Laura and um, and uh, um, uh, Rick, uh, the geniuses behind this project. So you have a tent-like structure. You have post and beam construction, just like contemporary churches. And you have the sense in these synagogues that you're entering a special realm, an environment intended to promote the sense that one stood at the gates of Gan Eden, right, the Garden of Eden, at the gates of heaven, or pleaded before God in the holy temple that exists on high. A distinctive geometry, as I said, you can see in the drawings that we made for the ceiling how everything is laid out very precisely. It's a lush, carpeted tent spread out above one's head as one prays. And because I was involved in the project, I got high resolution scans of the actual images that were used, which I'll show you. These can be blown up. So I'll tell you about the dates. So these are, this, is, this, is a, this is a 17th century synagogue that was renewed in the 18th century. And it has a signature of the artists on it. We know who made it. Jewish artists, actually. Isn't this amazing, mm -hmm. right? 
And the symbolism is, some of it is amazing, obvious symbols of, of various kinds, some familiar like zodiac signs, right? Zodiac symbolizing the glory of God in the universe. That's how you showed it. It wasn't, you know, astrology, like I said, predictive astrology from the newspaper. Just as if I said to you, draw a picture of the sun, right? You'd make a circle with rays, and if you had raisin bran this morning, you might make a eyes, nose, and a mouth. But the sun is a fiery ball of gas. We agree, right? It's not a circle with rays. But that's our convention. That's how we show the sun. So the zodiac is a way of showing the glory of God in the universe and how everything works as it should. But others are more perplexing, like this image of three rabbits in the middle. I'm sorry that the quality of the image is not great. Ari needs a new, um, new projector. Um, sharing three ears between them. Um, lions fighting unicorns, foxes stealing geese, dragons devouring rabbits, roosters and sea unicorns, leopards with human faces, right? Just as, a as there's a link, both in text and art, between early Jewish visual culture from antiquity and Jewish manuscripts in the Middle Ages. So there's a connection between classical Jewish texts and culture and the art of Polish and Ukrainian synagogue decoration in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. The link in this case was via texts, Torah, Midrash, or rabbinic legendary elaborations on scripture, the Talmud and the law codes that emerge from it, and mystical literature. Most of the symbols represented in the art of the wooden synagogues emerge from these sources. And I'd like to discuss just a few with you. The most striking and intriguing are, of course, the many images of animal life and the natural world that are shot throughout the decoration. Let's start off with some very basic symbols. The standards, right? The so-called four animals of Judah ben Tema. So the Mishnah, which is the distillation of the legal material in the Torah, um, begins um, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, not the Mishnah, I'm sorry, the Mishnah uh, is the distillation of legal materials in the Torah. It is, um, it is uh, further, um, uh, let's say, distilled into the various Jewish law codes. And one of the most famous of the Jewish law codes, um, the, the, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, begins with a quote from the Mishnah Pirkei Avot, the uh, ethics of the ancestors. And that quote says, Yehuda ben Tema used to say, be strong as a leopard and light as an eagle and run like a deer, and be brave as a lion to do the will of your parent in heaven, right? Strong as an eagle, a leopard, light as an eagle, swift as a deer. And in fact, these animals were illustrated throughout Jewish culture, like this wonderful image of a synagogue in Italy, a good place to go, I would think, yes? Um, <laughs> with a Gothic uh, cabinet, you could see the mechitza, the, um, the, the, the women's section, what you see here is mainly men, beautiful Gothic architecture, and then in the corners, those four animals, the lion with the banner that says Gibor Ka'ari, the leopard, the eagle, and the deer. And in um, some other synagogues, this one is a, um, it's from Lutsk in Poland, and it's, uh, it's a plaster and, and, uh, and uh, stone construction, and you can see the deer and the lion, and on the other side are the other animals. So lions, right? Everybody knows what the symbol of a lion in Judaism is, right? We see them all the time, um, accompanying uh, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue on Torah arcs. Um, I love this one because it is from the B'nai Shalom Synagogue in Harlan. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just getting in touch with my inner freak. Um, <laughs> This one is from Harlan, Kentucky, okay? Voden, <laughs> they were Yidden in, in Harlan, Kentucky, okay? And everybody knows, what are those lions? The lions of? Judah. Judah, very good, very nice. But here's the thing. If we have, why do we have lions of Judah? Judah only has one lion, right? The lion of Judah. So you say, oh, symmetry. You know, and then some of my colleagues say, well, if we go back to the ancient archaeology of the Gate of the Sun in Babylonia, we can see that there are symmetrical lions. I'm like, okay, first of all, when you read about Judah's lion, 
in the blessings to the tribes in Genesis, it's a very violent image. Gur Judah's like a lion's whelp on prey, my son, you have grown. He crouches, lies like a lion, like the king of beasts, right? I mean, it's a very scary kind of image. And, you know, then we have to ask, what's the association of lions with the Torah? So you will say, what are they doing? They're guarding, protecting the Torah, right? But why lions, right? You know, why not dragons? What, you know, what's protective, right? Now, the truth is that there are many contexts in which lions appear. Um, one of my favorite is this. This is a wooden synagogue from Chorb in Germany. It was painted by these Polish Jewish artists, but they ended up going um, to, to, to the West, to Germany. And it was painted in 1737. And it has a wonderful quotation from the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. So in the Kedusha, the sanctification prayer, holy, 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 kadosh, 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 on Rosh Hashanah, Instead of simply saying that the angels say holy, 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 it lists the different kinds of angels. So it says, and you can see the text. Then says Here's a drawing of the same thing. It might be a little clearer. And so it says there's animal. There are angels called chayot, which means the living creatures. Those are the creatures of Ezekiel's throne, the lion, the eagle, the bull. And so here it says the chayot will make music. And how is it symbolized? By lions blowing trumpets. Right? So it's very beautiful, right? Um, and in fact, if you think about it, the best symbols to accompany the law or the Torah or the Ten Commandments are the angelic symbols, the kruvim, right? In fact, in Exodus, hakuvim the cherubs on the ark made of gold spread their wings up above. And what I love about that quotation is when it appears in cantillated in the trope, in the way we sing the, the, the Torah portion, it's kadma ve'azra. So the, the, where it says the trope, if you remember from your bar mitzvah, if you read Torah, looks like the wings of angels, right? They, Right? So it's very beautiful. And in fact, in the earliest Jewish art that we have, um, what we had were the scrolls of the law or the Decalogue, the two tablets of the law, or some representation of the Torah, accompanied not by angels, because you couldn't show angels, but by birds, winged creatures that represented angels. And here you see on a piece of gold glass from Rome, it's in the Vatican, I actually saw it a couple weeks ago. You see it, this is a Torah ark, and it's fascinating because it's a cabinet, right? And it's open and the scrolls are facing you. They're not covered by anything, they don't have mantles or silver on them, they're just scrolls and they're put in the cabinet, right? It's a very nice way of being able to store scrolls. Um, and here there are two birds who are holding ribbons attached to the ark. And there's a menorah, and there's a srogim, and a shofar, and a lulav, right? Now, first in Jewish art, it was just those birds. But at a time that Jews began to speak, not Hebrew so much, but Aramaic. Aramaic is a language that everybody spoke in the ancient Near East, right? We could call it the lingua franca of the ancient Near East, but we probably should call it the lingua aramica, right? Everybody spoke it. The Babylonians wrote it in cuneiform, those peculiar little triangular you know, um, incisions in clay, and, and people who, uh, the, the Arabs wrote it in proto-Arabic letters, and Jews wrote it in Hebrew letters, Aramaic. It was like the English of the ancient world. It was a little like Hebrew, but not completely. You know, probably then in Hebrew, um, the word, or maybe you don't, I, I hated that when my teachers in college would say, as surely you know, and of course you didn't know it, and you felt like a fool. <laughs> so I won't, I won't, or the other thing, the other trick they had was like, when you've been in Italy, you know, and I, I never got to Italy till I was 50 years old, which is a good reason actually that CSP should consider it. Um, anyway, so as surely you possibly don't know, right? In Aramaic, there's a vowel shift from Hebrew. So Hebrew, is, how do you say an ox, anybody? Ox, shor, shor, shin, vav, resh, shor, right? So how do you say an ox in Aramaic? 
tor, right? It's the next letter in the alphabet, the vowel, the, the, uh, not the vowel, consonant shift, the consonant shift. So Aramaic is close, right? If I say yiskadal v'yiskadash, right? Uh, in Aramaic, you can understand tit gadel v'tit kadesh in Hebrew, right? It's very close, okay. So when Jews started speaking Aramaic, right, around the first, second century, very widespread in Eretz Israel, um, Hebrew was used for liturgical purposes, like, you know, like today, for bar and mitzvahs, right? Um, but the language that people were speaking to each other was Aramaic and a little Greek and occasional words in Latin when they had to deal with the occupation, right? So when they started speaking Aramaic, lions begin to appear also, right? Soon they take over and all you see, see at the top here, are lions accompanying the Torah, right? The Ark, right? Now... This is because of an interesting reason, and it involves Aramaic grammar and puns, okay? This is the real reason why you have two lions accompanying the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Shul. Here's the reason. How do you say a lion in Hebrew? Ariyeh or Ari, right? In Aramaic, it's the same. How do you say two lions in Hebrew, or two or more? Ariyot, Ariyot, right? In Aramaic, there's a different word. One lion is Ari in Hebrew, and a pair of lions is Arayot. But in Aramaic, one lion is Ari, and a pair of lions is Aryavata. Aryavata. It's in actually a Sabbath table hymn, Prokyat Anach Mipum Aryavata. Anybody know the hymn Karibon? Prokyat Anach, take your nation out of the mouth of the lions. Multiple lions, two lions, Aryavata. How do you say Torah in Hebrew? Torah. How do you say Torah in Aramaic? Oraita. It's the same word, just with one letter switched. So when an Aramaic-speaking Jew saw two lions, she would think, Aryavata Oraita. It's a symbol of the Torah because of the language I speak. It's like this image. A spectacled bear in a zoo in Leipzig who has lost her fur due to an unexplained illness. It's a bear, bear, you get it? <laughs> That's because you speak English, right? So when an Aramaic-speaking Jew saw two lions, they would think Torah, right? It was, but nobody ever thought of that, you know, B-E, you know, B-E, right? There's B-C, you've heard of B-C, right? That's before you know who, right? Yeah. B-E is, B-E is before Epstein, right? So... <laughs> Nobody really thought about this before. I put it as a footnote in the very first book I wrote, and somebody wrote about it subsequently like it was this big discovery. We found in a footnote of Epstein's book this idea that revolutionized the way we think about lions. And it's like, who, who cares? It's so strange. It's like, you know, what I do, I have to say, I, 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 I put on this falsely arrogant um, persona, and my students sometimes think it's real, so they write in the critiques. Mr. Epstein was so arrogant, he kept telling us what a great guy he was. So I, I, have to, I often say, you know, I am at the very pinnacle of my field, which is like being living in the penthouse apartment of a one-story building, because <laughs> nobody cares about what two lions are in Aramaic. Who cares, right? Okay, but you should, you should. We all should. This is very important. Okay. Um, how about responses and polemics in art, right? Um, so rapacious beasts and innocent victims. Look, Jews in the Middle Ages were faced by images like this. Here's the church on the left. She's looking pretty, right? You know? And there's the synagogue with the broken spear and the tablets of the law falling from her hands and a turban and a blindfold, right? You could see images like this painted on the outside of churches and in stained glass windows, right? Or, you know... Images of the Jewish tormentors of Jesus. Here he is with a nice little Aryan boy, you see him in the middle, right? And, the, and all the Jews, Caiaphas, the high priest, and his associates, they're, you know, dark-skinned and animalistic looking, right? How are Jews supposed to respond to these kinds of images? Well, they respond, and this is what I've done a lot in art, right? And they continue to respond, not only in the Middle Ages, but in the 18th century. You see, you know, the rapacious um, uh, hawk, which is stealing the chicks, right? It's a comment on the way things are, unfortunately, in the world, right? Or the, the wolf that's stealing the baby goats. So cute, but sad, right? Or the dragon, right? Who's, you know, all that firepower against such a little creature, the hare, right? Um, there's a sense here, and you find it um, repeated uh, very often of the, the sort of Jew, Jews taking a, a stance against the powers in the world that surround and threaten them. 
uh, as they as they do in medieval art, as you see as you um, as you see here. Now, um, one of the strange things that uh, occurs in um, in art in Polish synagogue ceilings is elephants. I mean, what Polish person ever saw an elephant, first of all, right? You know, there weren't very many elephants in Poland. And what do they mean? And yet they appear, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I left out some, some I'm sorry, I have to back up. Uh, again, the hawk and the, the hare, uh, important motif. Or this is very cool. This is the Austro-Hungarian double-headed eagle strangling two hares which is definitely a political commentary. But what you see is that the hares are still alive and they're still running. So it's an enormous screw you to you know, Maria Theresa, who was the um, Habsburg Empress at that time and was a, a vicious anti-Semite. So elephants, okay. What are elephants doing in synagogues? And yet there they are. They often appear in these wooden synagogues on the sides of the ark on the sides of the ark, facing the ark. Now, um, so w when we think about winged angels or birds, it makes sense because the Ark of the Covenant, the predecessor of the Ark of the Law in the synagogue, had these winged creatures on it. And then we think about lions. Okay, that made sense at a certain point in history, right? You know, because the word two lions represented Torah. But what are elephants uh, doing there? By the way, you can see here what the photographs taken in the early 20th century of these synagogues look like, right? So that's what they reconstructed them on the basis of. Now, believe it or not, elephants appear in ancient Jewish art, and if you can imagine the Torah ark being here in the synagogue of Ma'on from the, from, the, um, from the 6th century, Byzantine synagogue, and there are lions, as you can see, which represent Torah, and there are um, palm trees, the tree of life, the Torah is represented by trees, and there are birds, which represent the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant, so all symbols of Torah. And then, directly on a triangulated axis with the Ark, there are two elephants, right? So that's really interesting to me. Or in a medieval manuscript, the Worms Machser, you have Mount Sinai shown, and this is this is Mount Sinai, it's the arch, okay? And there are all these figures here that represent each of the Ten Commandments. They each hold a little banner with one of the Ten Commandments. And in the middle, this word Adon, the Lord, and you have Moses, it's cut off um, in the, because it was, the book was rebound at some point. Um, you have Moses receiving the law and giving it to Joshua. And then at the bottom of the whole edifice, there's a dragon, which is kind of messed up here. And then there is this beautiful, Lovely, I think, um, blue elephant. Look at him, very sweet, right? And so, you know, what's the elephant doing there? Well, in the Middle Ages, the elephant was often used in Jewish art as a symbol of the Torah, of law. In fact, in this page, uh, the opening page of the book of De Deuteronomy in the Duke of Sussex Pentateuch in 1300, we have an elephant, an elephant with a castle or a crown, and, um, and, and has to do um, uh, with the idea in Christian art that the elephant represented the lumbering law of the Jews, right? Um, and so Jews adopted this and said, actually, this is a, the elephant is a dignified beast and you know, it, it lives long and it's very wise and so it was used as a symbol of Torah. But what's interesting to me in this first illustration is that the elephant here is accompanied by four storks. Did you, do you see them? Two of the storks at the bottom are killing snakes, the traditional enemy of storks, and two of the storks are sitting pretty up in a couple of trees. They're relaxing there. Now, the um, inscription that appears in many of these illustrations is the, is the text for taking out and putting away the Torah. When you take out the Torah, you say, when the ark began to move, right? Moses would say, right? Rise up Hashem and destroy your enemies. And when the ark came to rest, right? God, uh, Moses would say, return, O Lord, to your resting, resting place, you and the ark of your covenant, right? So the word for 
you and your, it says your, your, um, your uh, I'm sorry, this is, the colors are terrible. Your priests are clothed in triumph, your loyal ones sing for joy. The word for loyal ones is chasidecha. The word in Hebrew for stork is chasida, chasida. And so in this illustration, sorry, I should just go back. The four storks represent the Levites who accompanied the ark because the Levites are referred to as chasidei, chasidei Hashem, the, the, the um, not chasidei Hashem, chasidei Hashem, right, the loyal ones of God. And these represent, rise up, O Lord, and destroy your enemies on the bottom. And these represent, return, O Lord, to your resting place. And the elephant with its castle represents the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see that because in a number of places, the text for Vayihib bin Soa and Ubenu Chayomar appear right above the elephants. Here's the one from the reconstructed synagogue, Ubnu Chayamar, right? So there's our elephant. And here's um, a painting uh, based on the original. Well, what about messianic symbols? Mashiach, 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 right? Okay, messianic symbols. Um, you know, the Judaism had two messianic symbols. One was the lion, this case, of Judah, which symbolized the Davidic legacy. We call the Messiah, Mashiach ben David, right? This is a person who comes from the Davidic line, who is a descendant of the original monarchs of Israel. And that's a Messiah that's spoken of as a person who will bring peace and plenty uh, to the world, right? Um, and, and, and a solution to, to, to all the problems in our, in our, in our, in our society, in our world. There's another Mashiach, though, and that is called the Mashiach ben Yosef. So the Mashiach ben Yosef, less well-known, is described as the Messiah who comes from the house of Joseph, and not from the house of David, and who fights and struggles with the nations of the world and, um, and eventually uh, uh, destroys Israel's enemies, and then comes the Mashiach ben, ben David. And so there was this sort of dual messianic position. And so what we have in Jewish art is we have... Uh, symbols that were used as symbols of Christ, actually, the lion and the unicorn, and we see them often in conflict. So, right, one of the things you could say is this represents the Messiah of the son of Joseph, the Messiah, the son of David, but the problem is, why would they be fighting with each other? And so the other meaning for lions in Jewish life and symbolism, prokyat anach, take your nation out of the mouth of the lions. The lions represent the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the Jews. And here you see this struggle in Chodorov synagogue between the Mashiach ben Yosef, the unicorn. Joseph is described as a unicorn in the Bible. Joseph has the horns of a, of a unicorn, Menashe. Um, uh, uh, Joseph's son, uh, Menashe. Um, uh, and, and so the unicorn, um, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, is fighting with the nations of the world, and even though it looks like the lion has literally the upper hand, he's at the same time blowing on the unicorn's horn, which is the great shofar of redemption. Blow the great shofar of redemption, right? And so a, a, a symbol that appears in Jewish art, adopted from Christian art, where it's a symbol of the the um, torture, the passion of Jesus, very clearly here, the unicorn tapestries, right? And a contemporary image of the passion. Or again, the unicorn tapestries and Jesus taken down from the cross is translated, is translated um, into a, uh, a, a Jewish symbol um, for messianism, right? Joseph of Joseph, it said, um, like a firstling bull um, in his majesty, he has horns like the horns of the Re'em. And, and in, in medieval times, the Re'em, which probably means a wild ox, was understood to be a unicorn. Um, and so with them, he, he, he gores the people. So here in Gvorjitz and here in Chodorov, we have uh, the unicorn um, fighting with the lion, fighting with the nations of the world. And even though it seems like the nations have the upper hand, the unicorn triumphs. So I hope I've been able to share with you this afternoon some ways in which Jewish visual culture unfolds in this particular Polish setting. Um, the, the distillation of a long odyssey from apparent prohibition in the Second Commandment to overt celebration. And I'm aware that this material is perhaps a bit alien, a little less familiar by our standards than 
uh, we may be accustomed to when we think of Jewish art. But I hope I've been able to open a window for you on the ways in which Jews used these symbols to express their innermost um, components of their culture, to affirm their core values, Torah, redemption, right? Um, in a way that also beautified the spaces in which they performed their liturgical life. And I hope that we've been able to glimpse together in the mirror of history some insights uh, by grace of art. Um, I am so amazed that you lucky people, like I say, I gave away my one chance to go to Poland and I haven't been able to afford to do it since. You are going to have an adventure. I mean, true, you have to go with Ari Katz, but it's, it's, it's well, well set up. I mean, did you see? Did you see the brochure? Do you see how gorgeous? Do you see how insightful? Do you see all the stops? I mean, it is going to be an amazing, amazing experience. And um, I wish you bon voyage. I wish I could join you in all of these amazing places, right? Um, and I hope that you'll come back with renewed insights into Jewish life and culture and that you'll have the kayach, the strength, and the inspiration to come on many um, other trips. Um, if you've liked what I did today, you could also grab my book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's a fun book to read. I didn't write it all myself. I don't know everything, you know. I know almost everything, but not everything. And so I enlisted a group of very talented scholars um, to, 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 um, to uh, contribute to the book. And you can also write me an email. And people here who know, know that I do answer emails. I'm very interested in your insights. I'm not the only one with eyes. So with that, I'll turn it over to, um, to, to a couple of questions. Um, and I want to sincerely thank you. It's just, it's very, very, very touching to see such a large audience. Okay. Okay. This mic. Run the mic. What's good about Ari is that he's this, you know, big fancy macher and does programs, but he also runs the mic. I'd like to know a little bit more about the original graphics. That, that uh, how was that saved? In other words, the, the so yeah. so okay. So all we have, all we have for Gvorjit Synagogue and Chodorov Synagogue and bits of others, are some black and white photographs from an ethnographic uh, expedition that was that went under the direction of Ansky. Ansky was a famous playwright and poet. He wrote the he wrote the Dybbuk. Um, and he was also an ethnographer, and he did this whole Russo-Polish ethnography in the 1900s, 1904 or 6, and they took photographs. I mean, interest, you know, the relationship with Poles is so strange. Like, they're so happy to have this museum now, right? But there's also, you know, burgeoning anti-Semitism in the sticks in Poland. In 1900, at the same time as people were getting ready to pogrom, you know, they also, the intellectuals in Poland, felt like these synagogues were their national treasure. And they were photographing them, and they were with primitive photography, and they were painting them and drawing them, and they were, you know. So the lesson is this. There's a lot of really bad people with bad intentions in this world, but there are also a lot of great people from the same ethnic groups, from the same cultural heritage, and we really have to encourage the good as much as we discourage the bad, right? And that's how they got saved. Yeah. Yes, okay, Ari's gonna choose the next person. Because I don't know you, you know, some of you may so be lunatics, the, uh, I mean, you know. The, the trailer you saw for the movie oh, Raising the Roof. You're gonna say something, I um, see, okay. I bought the DVD for our group who's going to Poland, so Big we, spender. we have a viewing tomorrow night that's sold out for some people from our group. But if you'd like to borrow the DVD, I highly, highly recommend you watch it. It has a lot of information. They're amazing. Laura and Rick Brown, I mean, like I said, totally not Jewish. They just got into this as a project. No. Amazing. And uh, we have very limited time, so just a quick question. Okay. okay? Uh, just what, what centuries were these paintings? So, uh, so uh, they're, they're basically late 17th, starting from the 16th, probably after the Chmielniki pogrom, so after 1648, so 1660s, and they were renewed and restored up through the 18th century, through the 1700s. So, yes, we take one more, this gentleman maybe? Can you, thanks. I've, uh, I've read that uh, medieval Jewish artisans were involved in decorating churches. Sure. Is that true, and how extensive? We don't know that much about this. We do know that there were a couple of people who painted, who helped to paint retaplos, which are altarpieces in Spain. 
We don't have any evidence of it uh, in, in Franco Germany. The medieval art that I study, manuscripts, was I used to think when I was young and I, I got from and I was all into Jewish power, you know, I thought we're going to, my teachers all said that these medieval manuscripts were made by non Jews because, and I quote directly, Jews weren't good enough to make good art. And I was like, no, that can't be possible. You know? But over the years, I've come to realize that most medieval manuscripts made for Jews, which is how I refer to that art now, not medieval Jewish manuscripts, or made for Jews, were made by non-Jews. But I like that for two reasons. One, they were very, very expensive. And you don't simply say, do whatever you want in the manuscript. You give very explicit instructions, A. So there's B, and B, there's a conversation. A Haggadah, a Hawada, you know, this conversation I was talking about. And I'm working on a project now in Venice. We're doing the new Venice Haggadah. The original one was published in 1609. We got a bunch of artists, including Andy Aronovitz, who's coming next week, to create the new Venice Haggadah. And I'm now in the process of talking to a printer named Per Polo, who is completely a Catholic. And I, for years, told people at audiences like this, in the Middle Ages, they had conversations. They walk into the shop, I want a Haggadah. What's a Haggadah, right? I swear to you, David, three weeks ago in Venice, I walked into this guy's shop. I said, okay, we're doing an artist's Haggadah. He said, Ahawada. And we had the exact conversation that I imagined was going on in the Middle Ages. So it's really cool. Anyway, write me, because obviously there's no more time, because Ari gave such a long introduction. <laughs> just want to be clear. Thank you, thank you. Okay, thank you, Mark.